The Protect Our Province COVID-19 briefing is a regular panel of doctors and experts that address questions from the media and viewers at home. We are live streaming from the traditional and ancestral territory of many peoples. Within a cross-Canada digital landscape, we wish to take time to acknowledge all the Inuit, Métis, and First Nations people that call this land home. Please take a moment to reflect on your relationship with the people and the lands on which you are currently situated. Today's conversation is being shared in English and in ASL. To ensure access to completely accurate information, closed captioning will be uploaded after the live stream is complete. This national conversation for the public is being shared live on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. We are hoping to create a French language translation as well. If you are interested in regular information in French, please also tune in to our sister broadcast through POP Quebec. Details can be found at www.popqc.ca. The views of our panelists are their own and do not represent any institutions they may be affiliated with. We have collectively gathered here as concerned Canadians, attempting to ensure that everyone in the country has access to as much information concerning COVID-19 as possible and the nationwide impact of regional policies. From wherever you are joining us, thank you very much for being here today. We're going to be doing a focus on the Prairie Provinces, particularly Saskatchewan and Manitoba, similarities in their responses, differences, and what is happening currently on the ground in each jurisdiction, which uh, with us today, we have some excellent panelists, experts from both Saskatchewan and Manitoba. I'm going to take this opportunity to bring our panelists into the conversation and allow them to introduce themselves. And then we will move on to some more detailed information on those jurisdictions before taking questions from the public and the media. Thank you guys so much for being with us. Maybe we'll start with a little bit of who you are and what your lens is with Dr. Wong and then just proceed clockwise around the crew. Thank you, Michelle. My name is Alex. I'm an infectious disease physician in Regina, Saskatchewan, Canada, and I'm an associate professor with the University of Saskatchewan. Uh, I, I'm pleased to be here and to provide uh, facts, evidence, and uh, my interpretation of uh, uh, the current situation regarding COVID-19 uh, for the province of Saskatchewan uh, to this uh, group. So thank you for joining us. And I think I'm next. Thank you very much, Michelle. I'm Dr. Jillian Horton, and I'm a specialist in general internal medicine, and I practice in Winnipeg. I'm an associate professor at the University of Manitoba in the Department of Internal Medicine, although, as you noted earlier, I speak for myself and my opinions are my own. I primarily uh, do clinical practice in the area of people living with addictions, and I hold a number of um, administrative and teaching roles as well. And along with a group of colleagues, I have uh, been active speaking out um, since the time that we first began experiencing tension between our systems and a lot of the direction in terms of how the current crisis has been managed politically by our governments. Great. I'm, I'm uh, Dr. Christine Peshkin. I'm also at the University of Manitoba. I'm a professor of uh, rheumatology and community health sciences and I'm part of uh, the group that, that Jillian has been um, talking about. I um, come at this from a slightly different view. I mean my most of my practice is chronic care medicine. I deal with uh, patients who are immune compromised and therefore have been very vulnerable to COVID um, right from the beginning and are now very vulnerable when it comes to the delays and the shutdowns in the healthcare system. And that's been my primary focus and lens um, during this uh, pandemic. Thank you all so very much for taking the time to be with us today. I know that this last two years has been more than exhausting for everyone who is on the ground, particularly in healthcare settings. As we begin our conversation today, I'd like to start by focusing in a little bit on Saskatchewan. So I'm going to pop um, our Manitoba panelists back into our green room. Um, Dr. Wong, would you talk everybody through what's happening currently in Saskatchewan? Sure. If you want to pull my slides up, uh, Michelle, we will begin. I'm just going to probably try to take like three to five minutes just to provide everybody on the line with a brief overview. Um, we'll go through the statistics or at least uh, the daily statistics in just a moment. But in brief, Saskatchewan's been quite unique with regards to uh, Canada uh, in its approach to uh, addressing uh, COVID-19. 
as far as I know, we are the only province at this point in time, uh, the only mainland province that has no public measures, uh, public health measures in place other than for an indoor mask mandate, as well as proof of vaccine status. The mask mandate came into place in mid-September and proof of vaccine at the beginning of October. There are no capacity or gathering limits or restrictions at this time. Earlier today, there was a press conference held by our health minister, uh, uh, Minister Merriman, as well as our chief medical health officer, Dr. Saqib Shahab, indicating that um, there would be a universal five-day isolation period uh, for all individuals who test positive for uh, COVID-19. Um, and uh, at the same time, hang on a sec, that we would be uh, eliminating close contact isolation. So if you are named as a close contact of COVID-19, regardless of your vaccine status, uh, you do not have to isolate any longer for any period of time. You have to self-monitor and isolate only if you have symptoms. That will go into place as of tomorrow. Uh, there's also been messaging from our Premier over the last week indicating that uh, current measures, uh, including our mask mandate, as well as our uh, proof of vaccine program, could potentially be relaxed or removed relatively soon, although there doesn't appear to be a clear timeline with regards to that. And he's also indicated in previous uh, announcements beginning early last week um, that he felt that uh, measures, uh, lockdown measures, as uh, the term that our premier uses, uh, have been harmful without clear evidence of benefit. And he cites Quebec's current situation um, and high hospitalization, ICU admission uh, situation, as well as high death rate, um, despite having very uh, uh, aggressive measures in place as being an example of this. Here in Saskatchewan, unfortunately, our hospitals and ICUs are filling up very, very quickly. Um, we'll show the graphs in just a moment. But there's major pressure on our acute facilities in Saskatoon and Regina where uh, patients are funneling. And it does appear in general as though our Omicron wave uh, has uh, started initially in the large centers, Regina and Saskatoon. The wastewater signals would suggest potentially that we're starting to peak in those uh, settings, but uh, we have yet to peak in rural Saskatchewan. Um, so with all that said, Michelle, if you want to move to the next slide, please. So I just um, just stole some charts here, some nicely put together charts from uh, a Twitter account, uh, OK Arbiter. He's been, uh, he or she has been present on Reddit for a number of months now and has helped to put all of our data together in a simple and easy to interpret sort of graphical format. So again, what we can see here is um, very high case rates, a test positivity rate of uh, somewhere between 30 to 35 percent per day, which is, uh, I think, the second highest in the country, only behind Manitoba. Um, deaths are increasing, uh, and uh, obviously our hospitalizations and ICU numbers are also increasing uh, quite rapidly. Next slide, please. Just moving here, like I would ask that uh, that everyone focus on the second graph sort of down below. This essentially, you can see in the green, this is our case count. Again, there's, uh, there's a certain skew here, obviously, with uh, limited access to PCR testing and so forth. But again, you can see this lag between the green curve and the red curve in terms of our hospitalization numbers. And you can see right now that we're on that unfortunate sort of exponential uh, growth curve of our hospitalizations. You can see that our peak hospitalization numbers were back in the fall when we had our horrible Delta wave. Um, there were about 350 some odd people hospitalized at that point we look almost assuredly to exceed that probably in the next day or two here in Saskatchewan. And we also see an uptick here in the yellow uh, of persons admitted to the ICU as well. Next slide. Um, just to highlight the fact that we have incomplete data from our ministry with regards to uh, cases by vaccine status, hospitalization by vaccine status. And as far as I know, there is no data that exists at this time with regards to uh, persons admitted to the ICU and their vaccine status as well. Next slide, please. Uh, lastly, just to talk very briefly about our vaccine uptake. Unfortunately, Saskatchewan lags most of Canada with regards to overall vaccine uptake. Uh, I believe if we look at all of the mainland provinces uh, that we are probably uh, second last, unfortunately, only behind, uh, only ahead of Alberta with regards to overall vaccine uptake. And like all other provinces, our booster uptake uh, has slowed. Um, and again, I mean, it's a bit of a struggle at this point in time to, uh, to, to, to work on figuring out ways to get that higher. Next slide, last slide. Lastly, just to highlight the fact, if we kind of move here uh, to the last graph here at the bottom, uh, just looking at the overall uptake in our, in our children aged 5 to 11, 
Uh, it's been modest for me personally. It's been kind of disappointing. We only have a little over 50% of our uh, kids aged five to 11 who have had their first dose and uh, a little over uh, 25% who have been fully vaccinated. It is worth mentioning that here in Saskatchewan, I think we were one of the only jurisdictions in the country uh, that allowed there to be some degree of parental slash caregiver choice with regards to the uh, uh, the interval between first and second doses. Um, so that uh, again is part of uh, uh, part of what may play into some of the numbers. But overall, we've had a lot of challenges in terms of vaccine uptake, particularly in rural uh, Saskatchewan and uh, in on reserve settings. Uh, so we obviously need to continue to work at that. So bottom line, uh, you know, suboptimal vaccine uptake. Uh, the the least sort of uh, aggressive public health measures in the country. And we're right in the midst right now of unfortunately a significant surge in, in hospitalizations and ICU admissions. We do anticipate that unfortunately things will get worse uh, for our hospitals and our ICUs probably over the next couple of weeks before they get better. And we expect to see some surge in rural Saskatchewan in the, in the coming weeks as well. Thank you so much, Dr. Wong. Just as a quick follow-up before I bring up our Manitoba panelists, um, you'd mentioned a little bit about your wastewater surveillance currently happening in Saskatchewan. What um, are, is the testing criteria in your jurisdiction right now for PCR and or rapid test access? Uh, there is still a recommendation, Michelle, for uh, persons who are symptomatic to to access uh, to access a PCR. On the other hand, if you have already tested positive on a rapid, it is not recommended at this time that you confirm with PCR. Um, PCR testing has also been reserved, obviously, for uh, higher risk uh, type settings and groups, for example, healthcare workers, uh, congregated living settings, and so forth. And there is some discussion around prioritizing, for example, persons who are uh, eligible for uh, early treatments like, uh, like the new uh, oral antivirals, as well as the monoclonal therapies. So as a regular citizen, say that I were currently living in Saskatchewan, and I was feeling slightly unwell, would I be able to freely book a PCR test? Or is that currently only available for healthcare workers and high risk groups? You still are able to go and line up to access a test. I don't believe that you can easily book an appointment in any sort of timely fashion. Um, you know, if there's one thing that Saskatchewan has, has, has been better at than other provinces, including Manitoba and Alberta, it has been access to rapid testing. Uh, there was a lot of pressure on the government, uh, I think, to roll out rapid testing with our Delta wave back in September. There were some hiccups, but uh, we've been able to actually roll out rapid testing quite well. And so accessibility to rapid tests for, you know, people that have access to things in general has been generally quite good. Uh, access to PCR testing is is still very, very limited at this point, but you still can line up. Uh, you'll just have to wait a few hours. Thank you very much for clarifying all of that. It's one of the things that I've noticed is a large jurisdictional difference throughout the country in terms of what level and what access of testing folks have available to them in order to see if they are actually contagious and ill or whether or not they're just feeling slightly under the weather. I'm going to pop you backstage again, Dr. Wong, for a few moments, and I'm going to bring up our team Manitoba, and then I'll bring you back into the conversation. Hello. Thank you both again so very much for being with us. Um, could you just give anybody watching a little bit of an overview conversationally, take your time, talk back and forth around what is happening in Manitoba and how that sort of compares to what we just heard from Dr. Wong in terms of what's happening in Saskatchewan? Sure. Thank you so much, um, Michelle. Well, maybe I'll start because I think I uh, drew the straw for who appears on the screen clockwise first. Um, a lot of similarities between uh, what is being described in Saskatchewan and what we are experiencing here in Manitoba. Um, high, high hospitalizations, uh, a record high, around 711, I think, as of um, the last posting. Uh, 51 patients in ICU, which again, we are at or near um, a record for these last two years. So really when we look at what's happening in the hospitals, we do see the most activity that we have seen throughout the entire pandemic. In terms of a few of those other metrics, um, as Alex mentioned, we have the dubious distinction of the currently highest reported test positivity rate, I believe in the country. Um, a, a few things that confound that, of course, as testing becomes more 
more limited and more targeted and varies across provinces, it can be hard to know what to make of that number, but certainly remains exceedingly high. Some of the data that we would like to have more access to. So for example, um, wastewater data, we had some coverage of this in the last couple of days, telling us that, you know, three out of four sites being sampled showed the highest um, peak probably for us was sometime right around or after New Year's Day. But again, that data, the way that it is shared and presented um, and what we know about it really makes it difficult for us to begin to interpret it. And just one other, you know, significant um question mark, I think, for all of us is we don't really know yet um, the degree to which Omicron has made its way into some of the areas of the province that are um, relatively under-vaccinated compared to, for example, Winnipeg, uh, where we have over 85%, I think even better than that now, um, of the population that is at least double vaccinated. Just looking on the Manitoba dashboard, as it is um, reported, if we look at our population of eligible folks being about 1.3 million, about half a million um, of Manitobans who are eligible have had two shots and another half a million have had three shots. So just to give you a very uh, general picture, but we have lots of areas of the province where um, the two and three dose um, and no dose um, population profile is quite different. And we don't yet have data that tells us um, whether Omicron has really taken off in those areas. So that's a big unknown for us, whether that could, you know, really represent um, a coming uptick of cases again, if those communities begin to be more affected. And we, again, like our Western uh, cousins and neighbors, suffer from a real lack of transparency of data coming to us from the government so that we can really have that true sense that what we think is happening is in fact what's going on. Yeah, I'll just add a little bit to that. In addition to what Jillian was saying about the very high hospitalization rates that we've had, that has been on a background of more staff shortages. This obviously is not at all unique to Manitoba. We're all facing that across the country. But, um, you know, the the we have this steady, incredibly high hospitalization rate where there's constant emails going out, you know, does anybody have any experience in anything that might be helpful? That's pretty much the level that it's gotten to you know, mm -hmm. um, in, in terms of helping out for, for nursing staff and physician staff um, on the on the wards and, um, and on the uh, COVID wards in particular as well. And we have lots of redeployed staff, which has, again, which has impacted on our ability to provide services um, outside of COVID. Um, again, I'm sure this is not new across the country. And in terms of uh, the comments about lack of transparency, it, it seems recently here like it's almost gone beyond lack of transparency to an effort to deliberately minimize the problem. They've changed the way, you know, there's been this ridiculous debate here in the province with COVID or for COVID, you know, trying to basically minimize the the picture. And is if, you know, if you can't see it, it's not here. And I think that's even more of a change that, that we're having that has made it very difficult to um, try to maintain interest, if you can call it that, in vaccination uptake for third doses. You know, we, we do hear about third dose fatigue, um, and and yet we know how necessary they are, and interest in, you know, the constant problems about um, more restrictions, school issues, contact tracing, which has gone completely out the window, I think, in this province as well. Nobody's trying anymore, which um, is, is hard to fathom. So, it's it's everything is happening on a background of two years of of um, fatigue on the part of staff and patients as well. I think it's really quite heartbreaking. I find as a human the desire to bury our heads in the sand sometime, as opposed to 
care for our neighbors and our loved ones in a way that is dignified and respectful and value valuing that the human condition and mm-hmm. the need to protect each other in order to have a true functioning civil society. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you very much for those words, Dr. Peshkin. I was, yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it's Michelle, ongoing tragedy. Just, yeah. just as you make those comments, you know, what I find myself thinking about and in, in terms of um, uh, Dr. Peshkin's description is a couple of weeks ago, our premier made a remark that, again, we're starting to hear uh, trickling out in public health messaging in other provinces or we already have heard. But the comment was essentially that it's up to Manitobans to look after themselves and the government can't protect people. And, you know, it's true that when we are healthy, when we have privilege, when we have resources, we do have, you know, a significant locus of control. There are certain things that we can do um, to protect ourselves. Many people don't have those privileges. And the second piece, of course, to that is, you know, it's pretty hard to protect yourself take care of yourself, look after yourself when you need to be on a ventilator. You can't intubate yourself. You can't operate on yourself. You can't prescribe and administer your own intravenous antibiotics. And so we can say that as, you know, a directive, as a philosophy, but in translation, it, it seems maybe like a an enactable, an actionable idea outside the walls of a hospital. Well, go inside the hospital and, and we look at how sick people are, how very much people need right now to be done for them. And as Dr. Peshkin said, not just people sick with COVID, but people with all of these other problems that have been um, neglected and, you know, not getting treatment because resources have necessarily been directed towards the crisis. The idea, um, the concept and the reality, you know, one is uh, one is just words, but putting that into action is really impossible. And the people who do that caring and that looking after at the end of the day, our healthcare workers, essential service workers, and in education, our teachers, you know, are carrying so much on their shoulders right now. So just the particular heartlessness of that messaging, it has struck me so often that this is not who we are. And I do not accept, and I don't think any of us who continue to speak out from physicians all the way to citizens who are, you know, expressing their thoughts, this is not what we've become. We are better than this. We are more than this. And we cannot accept this messaging. As we find ourselves in this really timely and heartfelt conversation at this moment, I'm going to bring Dr. Wong back in as well. Because I think even from well, definitely from my place in Alberta, that other prairie province jurisdictionally, in addition to that fatalism of letter rip, you'd spoken a lot about the the information that you're not receiving as humans from the folks who are making policy and from the folks who have that data, which sort of double edges that moral injury of make the best choices for yourself, be responsible for yourself. I am yet to fathom as a human how I can do that when I don't when I'm not, when a full picture isn't shared with me. No, I just, uh, again, I mean, I, I listened to Christine and Jill and I, I just was just like, yep, I, I, I mean, so again, I mean, my day-to-day work as an infectious disease physician uh, is mostly, you know, in, in the space where I look after persons who are living with HIV, viral hepatitis. I also do like full scope addictions medicine practice. Um, and so, you know, and infectious diseases uh, uh, predominantly affect those who, uh, you know, are marginalized, who are vulnerable, and who, you know, our society, you know, has kind of forgotten uh, about. And so, you know, I, I just feel fundamentally that our role here is to advocate for those people that do not have the means uh, to be able to advocate for themselves. And so on the one hand, I understand, I really do understand how, how, how fatigued everybody is with all of this. Uh, at the same time, as Jill said, it, it feels like it feels like we become an uncaring society when we just allow basically those that don't have the means to be able to make those decisions for themselves and again have the power the privilege the finances and the wherewithal to be able to make those types of good decisions uh you know all we're doing is we're just advancing you know uh, a certain agenda for those in power and those who have privilege and we keep pushing you know everybody else further and further to the fringes and for me personally as a professional that just hurts because when you give your life to try to help people 
you know, who don't necessarily have the means to be able to help themselves and you try to advocate for them in ways, you know, sustainably so that the system can support them. This feels, again, very much like we've kind of given up on them. And uh, it's just, it, it feels hard to accept. I don't want to accept that. I want to keep trying to push in ways that are going to be productive and are going to help uh, support those people who need us. One of the goals of our briefings is always to, in, in addition to the transparency, is to take questions from folks at home and from the media. That way we can fill some of that gap that is happening with that information dissemination and try to find ways to access folks who need it. Um, so we have a couple of media on deck with us right now. And so I would like to bring Zach Vissera from the Saskatoon Star Phoenix into the conversation. Zach, thank you so much for joining us. Feel free to address your question to whomever and feel free to ask a follow-up and thank you for your time today. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm a newspaper reporter, so it's very weird to see myself in any kind of image. This is terrifying for me. Uh, I have a question that I think could honestly probably be just be pretty open. One line of rhetoric we're hearing more often here in Saskatchewan, and I think in some other Canadian provinces, is about living with COVID-19, sometimes put. Um, there's this idea that uh, it needs to become more of a personal risk calculus in a certain type of way. This is going to be an endemic disease in the long run, and we can't rely on constant societal disruption to kind of stop it. And I feel like most experts I speak to agree that this is going to eventually become endemic. The difference seems to be on the path of how to get there. And I wonder what you folks would make of sort of the rise of that rhetoric and, and, and how it should be interpreted, what you think the end game of this is. Good question, I know. I'll just say, I mean, I, it's not an area of expertise in terms of, I'm not an epidemiologist in, in, in that sense, um, endemic versus pandemic, but that is a difficult thing for me to hear because um, my patients as immune compromised individuals with serious chronic diseases don't have the ability, well, their risk calculations have been live in a bubble and um, and rightly so. Uh, I mean, they, they don't have any better ability to do, to protect themselves. So, and we've all been, you know, living with lots of restrictions and had the, none of us like it, we're all tired of it. We've got mental health issues related to it, but, I think that is, you know, you get magnified for our compromised patients. And we're not yet at the stage where it's safe to say we're not out of a pandemic. It's not, you know, it's we're not there yet. So it's premature, really. And it's very hard to hear at this point because it really puts them at risk. And we have been seeing that certainly in terms of mortality. We've been seeing it in terms of hospitalizations. And I'm certainly also seeing it in terms of mental health. I mean, they have been in a, so so that's just my take on it that it's too soon. Jill, did you want to go next? Yeah, and then I'll I think would leave some of the uh, expert nuance to you as well, Alex. But you know, just a couple of things echoing what Christine said. I mean, one thing is there's a little bit of gaslighting involved here, right? I mean, the idea that we're talking about learning to live with this, moving to an endemic state. I mean, let's take a step back and say. Our hospitals, make no mistake, are in crisis. They're in perpetual crisis. As Christine said, as Alex has said, is the same thing in Saskatchewan. You know, this has been building, building, building for two years. So you don't decide that you are going to shift to a, you know, a tolerance strategy and a every person for themselves strategy when you are still in the middle of an active crisis in one of the main things that props society up. Now, you don't think healthcare is that important if you don't need it, or perhaps if you have very deep pockets and know that you can get on a plane and travel over a border and go somewhere and pay for it yourself. But I think one of the things that engenders humility when it comes to looking at uptake of, you know, what a real crisis is, defining um, the severity of the problem, you know, what kind of challenges have you had in your own life? If someone that you love has lived with the kind of chronic disease that patients um, like Christine's live with, or if you yourself have ever had something, or if you're just a, you know, a person who is really aware of the randomness of the hand of luck, you look 
look at this and say, our health system is so fragile right now that tomorrow, if I found a lump in my breast or an artery ruptured in my brain, I couldn't even count on the services being there necessarily. Now they're there. I don't, you know, again, because that's where people say, well, you're, it's fear mongering. Yes, you can go to a hospital, be seen by the appropriate physicians, but let us all be very clear. When the system is completely overloaded, the care is not the same. When you have one person who normally looks after one patient in an ICU, and now they're looking after two patients, or maybe they're even looking after four patients in a modified setting, who among us would ever pretend that a job that is normally so intense that it takes one person to do with one patient, when you begin to spread that out, the quality is not the same. There are delays finding beds for people, getting them transferred because our ambulances are busy transferring people all over the province in Manitoba right now. Our elders sometimes can find themselves in a, a transport van going six hours from the home where they live so that they can um, complete their hospital stay. And so we just have to recognize that without healthcare, if we don't need it, we don't think it's a problem. The moment we need it and it's not there, we suddenly realize that it is one of the most basic aspects of you know the assumptions that we build our society on. So I think that's another piece of this idea of when we move to saying learning to live with it, it's endemic. It's just not reality based for anyone who uh, has a healthcare condition or who may have one in the future and just doesn't know it yet. Yeah, so just uh, I could go on for an hour about the answer, but I'll just echo what Christine and Jill started to say. I think it's it's first of all, it's just kind of amazing to me how you know, we've somehow managed to just pretend that everything going on in healthcare is just fine. Mm -hmm. I, I don't, I don't, I don't even know how to fathom this in my own mind in terms of uh, what what is happening in hospitals and and the just utter crisis that's happening and the the, the degree of moral injury and damage that has occurred with literally every single person that I work with every single day, and yet we somehow just ignore all of that as if it's not a problem and this this it's going to just again be a cumulative toll that is going to not be something that we're going to be able to recover from but to answer your question zach i think um at the end of the day there is a hope that i think many people have that that this will be the last wave and again i think as we've as as, as our knowledge has grown around omicron um and as we see potentially emergence of like a, a you know again another a different lineage of omicron um, and we just kind of recognize how Omicron may potentially have come about in terms of either in an animal vector or possibly in a heavily immunosuppressed individual at the end of the day I think that the sad reality here is is that it's it's not over um, and uh, you know the very likely realistic possibility which is not me I yeah, I'm just a simple clinician but I think very very smart intelligent, virologists basically are are, are almost 100% convinced at this stage that you know if we don't have much uh, much greater significant vaccine uptake uh you know in uh undeveloped and third world settings there will be another wave and i mean it's it's it, it literally has only been like i remember 2 months ago i was on a plane to vancouver my first flight in 2 years um, and I was reading about this Omicron thing, and now here we are, like two months later, and it's completely destroyed our society, uh, you know, and completely transformed everything. So people say that that's doomsday thinking, you know, and that, you know, that if that's not going to happen. But honestly, every single time people have predicted that the pandemic was going to be over, it just wasn't. So unfortunately, you know, I, the virus doesn't care. And um I, I appreciate the fact that we do need to move to some new normal. And honestly, I think when Omicron is done in most of the developed world, we're going to see what that new normal looks like because there just probably isn't a tolerance for the same degree of you know, restrictions and measures as there was, say, a year and a half, two years ago. But that doesn't mean that we can't just not continue to maintain significant diligence around everything with regards to COVID. There's so many things we don't know and understand, short-term, long-term impacts of COVID, the impact of letting so many kids, literally like every single child unvaccinated, be, be infected with COVID is, is, is just so incredibly scary. 
Um, and all of the muddled messaging that we have, all of the challenging rhetoric that we're trying to deal with right now, where it seems like anything that's public health and scientific and evidence-based is now being labeled as, as extremist or, uh, you know, doom mongering or whatever term you wish to use, fear porn and, and so forth is, 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 is just really difficult to overcome. Um, so we need to try to all get on the same page with regards to our messaging. Um, but that is a challenge, I think, when we have our elected officials essentially message the idea that it's done, we're done, and good luck to everybody. Zach, I'd love to offer you the opportunity to ask a follow-up. Panelists, I'm just going to mute all of you because we are experiencing a teeny bit of feedback. So whenever you take the opportunity to respond to Zach's question, please just unmute yourselves and then remute when you're done. Zach, do you have a follow-up? Thanks so much. And maybe I'll direct this one to Alex. I'm uh, sorry, Dr. Wong. Uh, about And it kind of has to do with um, the kind of fear porn that you just mentioned and, and usage of terms like that. Um, and I, I this, is a, for, this is a question really about crisis communication. So please just let me know if you're not comfortable answering it. But we hear the word, and this was touched on earlier, we hear the word lockdown a lot now. Um, we hear it a lot more than we did even in the earlier phase of the pandemic where we had way stricter like actual restrictions going on. And it's used kind of interchangeably sometimes, I noticed, from, you know, uh, yeah, from our political figures. Premier Scott Moe, as you know, was, was doing a press conference earlier this week, and he was asked to define a lockdown. And his answer was basically that it is relative and that it is totally up to an individual. But I wonder what you make of, like, the constant use of that word recently. Because, uh, forgive me if I'm wrong, when I hear you talk about this, when I hear infectious disease people talk about this, I don't necessarily hear anyone advocating for wide-scale closure of all businesses like we had in the spring of 2020, right? So what, what do you make of this and what's going on? What are you actually kind of asking for? So thanks, uh, Zach. So to make, a, to make it blunt, uh, again, I mean, I, I think using a, a term like lockdown essentially triggers a certain type of uh, psychology um, that people have around, uh, you know, limitation of freedom, uh, and again, restriction of your liberties and your rights and all of these other things. And that, that is not the intent here. Um, the intent is to figure out ways to slow transmission of the virus by limiting uh, overall social contact, you know, especially when we're in a surge period like we are right now, to try to spread out the amount of transmission so that we don't have such huge significant surges that occur uh, you know, such that our hospitals and ICUs are overwhelmed. The entire goal is to slow down transmission of the virus. And again, I prefer the term measures because I don't feel that the term uh, uh, measures necessarily triggers to the same degree, but our premier seems to prefer to use that term lockdown uh, for whatever reason. Um, you know, again, the idea of lockdown to me is not about restricting, you know, restaurant capacity to 25% in an indoor space. Um, and again, I mean, the premier made a comment uh, earlier uh, this week with regards to how lockdowns, as you say, are, are different to different people. I, that is the truth. Some people might be very upset, for example, if their teenager is not able to go to an important hockey tournament. I would just say to that effect that I, I recognize that and I am not trivializing the impact of policy on any given individual or any in given family's circumstances. But at the end of the day, the reason why we're trying to do all of this is basically to minimize death and suffering. And essentially, when we're saying that the personal freedoms of uh, a teenage hockey player, um, you know, outweigh essentially that of, for example, a medically vulnerable individual or an unvaccinated three-year-old or, you know, uh, someone who can't access life-saving uh, surgery or a procedure because our hospitals are full, that to me is just difficult in my own mind to reconcile. I believe at a societal level that we have a responsibility to advocate for those who you know, are in those types of circumstances and to protect those that don't have the means to be able to protect themselves. Um, so I'll just leave it at that. Um, and to say that, um, you know, I think our, the messaging from our elected leaders has been very clear at this point. I don't believe that there's going to be new measures uh, or restrictions put in place at this point. What I believe that unfortunately means for our province is that we are going to have, you know, again, significant case numbers, but more importantly and more, more problematic, we're going to have 
hospitalizations continue to grow over the course of the next couple of weeks. And it's going to be a real challenge uh, for healthcare workers and for our system to absorb all of that. Thank you so very much, Zach, for joining us for your questions today. Um, I am going to bring in Alexander Kwan from CBC News. Um, Alexander, feel free to address your question to whomever you so desire or the entirety of the panel. And thank you very much for joining us. Hi there. Uh, I guess my question would be for Dr. Wong, uh, but it could be open to anybody. I've spoken to a lot of parents after today's announcement who say they feel uh, like they don't have any guideposts on what to do, on how to feel safe, and whether or not they can send their child to school uh, now that uh, reporting from schools is going to be ending as of tomorrow. Uh, I guess what advice would you give to parents who are looking for some kind of guidance right now? Thanks, Alex. Uh, so tough situation. Uh, and I, I guess the first thing that I would say is that, uh, first of all, if your child is fully vaccinated two weeks out from their second dose, and if your child has the ability to wear uh, a high quality, uh, ideally like some type of a respirator, but if not that, then a double mask with, with a good fit and a medical grade mask. Um, and if your child is in a setting, uh, you know, where the classroom is well ventilated, uh, ideally like a newer school or if they've upgraded ventilation, that probably is going to be about as safe as it's going to be. The problem right now is, is that our, 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 our Omicron surge is still occurring. It's a bit different depending on where you are in the province of Saskatchewan and again, different for the province of Manitoba. Um, so if you're in a situation where you're very concerned about the potential that your child might uh, get COVID, again, without really any knowledge or uh, understanding of what's happening around you or what's happening in the classroom, uh, you sort of have to make a decision at this point whether or not it makes sense to you uh, if you want to try to avoid having your child get COVID for whatever reason, uh, that's a personal decision, then possibly trying to keep your kid out over the course of the next two, three weeks or do remote, you know, while we crest and uh, come down so the amount of transmission is much, much less in the community, then it would be a much lower risk type setting at that point. On the other hand, if you're in a situation and fortunate enough to have your child be fully vaccinated, able to wear a high quality mask, uh, ideally a respirator, and be in a well-ventilated setting, um, you know, then honestly, your child is probably relatively safe, despite the significant amount of community transmission occurring in Saskatchewan right now. I think that would be, again, an individualized discussion that you would have to have with your child around the benefits of being at school uh, versus uh, choosing to go remote or online uh, over the course of the next two, three weeks. So it's hard to provide more general guidance other than for that. I think it, again, depends on every family's individual degree of risk tolerance. I mean, I don't want to be a fear monger, uh, but uh, I've personally in our family, we've been fortunate enough and privileged enough to have the means to be able to keep our kids home from school. And there's been multiple cases in my in my five year old's class, as well as my three year old's daycare room. And so almost assuredly, they would have, uh, you know, been significantly exposed and probably infected, um, you know, if they'd been there. So we all make individual choices. But go with what your gut tells you. Do the best you can to keep your kids safe. And you know what? At the end of the day, remember that, again, I don't want to minimize it, but COVID is uh, relatively minor, relatively minor for the vast majority of kids. If you need to make that decision to have your kid be at school or a daycare for your family circumstances, protect them as best you can and be okay with whatever happens. I'll just add that uh, I have to say, on a personal level, I've been so happy that my children are adults. <laughs> I haven't had to deal with homeschooling. I haven't had to deal with these questions. But other than that, I think it's exactly the same here in Manitoba, that, that uh, parents really don't know what to do. There aren't any guidelines. All of those really excellent points that, that Alex made often the parents don't seem to know the answer. We had had discussions and uh, here around school ventilation and a lot of the ventilation is not good in the older buildings, has not been improved. Mask access is not always great. So it is a difficult situation. And, and again, from my lens through which I'm seeing this, I have the added problem that my patients are wondering if it's safe to send their kids to school not 
for their children's safety, but knowing that there's a significant chance that they may bring COVID home and then what happens to them. And that's been an extremely difficult problem for them because they are well aware of the mental health effects on the children, aside from any other effects of keeping them home even longer now that schools are back open. And yet sending them to school may you know, open up family members to really quite significant risk of poor outcomes from COVID. So it's, it's just been so difficult. And, you know, I think Alex's answer was brilliant and I can't add to it, but it isn't exactly clear cut. There there just is, is no clear cut answer right now. And I would just agree 100% with what you both said. And I would also just say, it makes me so angry, you know, that this is put on the shoulders of parents. We've heard about this movement recently, the urgency of normal and a group of uh, largely American physicians with a Canadian physician, I think at least one as well, advocating for the removal of masks and, you know, returning to a normal state. Well, what about the urgency of mitigation? You know, imagine if last summer, every province had committed to making schools as safe as possible. As Alex said, we we can never make them perfectly safe at this point, but we can certainly make them as safe as possible. And then parents are choosing from an option where at least it's not all on them. They could know about the status of ventilation. They could know that teachers um, were that the teachers around their kids were vaccinated. They could know, um, you know, about the quality of the masking and all these things. And instead, what's happened is it's all on the parents. And as Alex said, you know. Just for interest sake, I've done the same thing as Alex. I'm also fortunate to be able to do it and keep my kids home while the cases are really high. Some of my colleagues have had to or sent their children to school in the last few weeks, and some of them have contracted COVID. And again, as Alex said, for most kids, COVID as an illness in the um, acute phase is going to be really mild. And I think there's always been a bit of misconstruction in terms of those of us who are really concerned about, as Alex said earlier, you know, just massive um, cohorts of kids all being exposed to COVID. Whether we like it or not, we can say at the time that it is, you know, in the vast majority of kids, a mild infection. It has not been around long enough for us to be able to say what the long-term consequences may be, just as Alex said earlier. So very often, you know, this narrative kind of gets um, spun that people say, well, COVID's mild and for most kids, so therefore, people who are raising caution and, and concerned about it and pushing aggressive mitigation, they're just fear-mongering. We don't know. And again, it comes back to that humility piece. We're seeing more data coming out about, for example, uh, potentially higher risk of diabetes in kids in the future if they've had COVID. This disease has not been around long enough for us to be able to make any meaningful statements about what the long-term implications may be for some people of infection. And Therefore, why not push that mitigation, do everything in our power to make the schools as safe as possible? I've often said that I think if this were a disease affecting primarily uh, politicians in, in midlife, you know, we would be pulling out every single stop to keep those folks safe. We owe the same thing to our children. And then, you know, you make it at least easier for people to make the decision that's right for them. I think there are a lot of folks who, if they knew that there's school had top-notch ventilation, N95s available, as good of a plan as possible at times when kids would be unmasked and eating, as much outdoor education as possible then I think many people would be saying, you know what, I'm going to send my kid because we all agree school is really wonderful for kids and beneficial to their development. I don't think there's really anybody in um, among expert voices who disagree about that. But where we do find ourselves having different perspectives is, you know, make the schools as safe as possible. And then people will be able to make the choice that fits their family instead of having to stay away from school because of some of those other factors that Christine mentioned that can come into play for many, many families. 
And for folks at home who are watching, I would just like to add from a non-medical perspective, from a perspective of someone who's had the privilege of spending the last five months talking to a lot of humans who have experienced this and a lot of families who have had COVID in their home, a lot of parents have expressed concern post-COVID exposure about not being ready for COVID exposure to have happened mm -hmm. in their home. And the folks who have sort of pre-mapped out what that might look like for them in terms of mitigating spread in their household, in terms of simple things like making sure their thermometer has good batteries, um, has really helped alleviate some of that stress if it is to happen. Because I think, unfortunately, for a lot of parents, I know myself included, even though my kids are older, um, when one of them was COVID positive, there is a lot of guilt on the parent part. And I think it's important to remind everybody at home, you, whatever choices you make are the right choices for you at that moment in time. And so having that pre and post plan just in case seems to save a lot of people a lot of heartache and heartbreak as they have to go through the challenges of living with a COVID positive case in their home. Um, Alexander, do you have a follow-up question? I do. Uh, this will be for, for Dr. Wan. Uh, cases are going up. Hospitalizations are going up. Uh, what kind of effect do you think that this morning's policy changes will have on those, on those metrics? Dr. Wong, you are currently muted. Thank you, Michelle. Uh, such a pleasant voice, Michelle. Um, so to make a long story short, Alex, uh, it's hard to know what the immediate impact will be. I mean, truthfully, it's probably going to be relatively minor in the grand scheme of things because uh, there is significant widespread community transmission of Omicron. We know this. Uh, I, I think um, the challenge here is that given the fact that we're literally right in the midst of the fire that, you know, the province is dealing with right now, the fact that we don't expect hospitalizations and ICU admissions to crest probably for the next week or two. I mean, I hope I'm wrong and I hope those numbers turn around really, really quickly. I just don't realistically see that happening. And again, we see different dynamics in uh, in the urban centers of Saskatchewan, so Saskatoon and Regina specifically compared to the rural centers. I think the rural centers have yet to really feel a significant surge of Omicron. And unfortunately, when uh, people get sick in those rural centers, uh, they're all going to get funneled again uh, to Regina and Saskatoon predominantly. So it's going to be a lot of, uh, it's going to be a challenging piece over the course of the next two, three weeks for us. And frankly, I, I wish that the government would have just given us a little bit more time because, again, when we're right literally in the midst of it, when all of the modeling that we have shows that when we don't have measures in place to significantly re reduce the amount of uh, you know, close contact and contact amongst humans and when we are actually making uh, and loosening our isolation uh, measures and protocols right in the midst of all of this, you know, in this kind of rush to normal or urgency to normal, as as Jill put it, which is kind of trending right now, um, you know, that's just going to add sort of fuel to the fire. And it's not obviously going to be a positive thing for our hospital system, our ICUs, and, you know, for the general crush that we're going to feel for healthcare workers. So I just, I realize, I, I understand that this is going to be our reality in the near future. It just would have been ideal, I think, if we could have waited a bit longer, you know, like four to six weeks when we could have been through the worst of this to let it go as opposed to literally having it happen like right now. But, you know, I'm not the one that makes policy. Thank you very much for joining us, Alexander. Um, as we move into our last few minutes together, I would love to take this opportunity to ask you all to share some sort of closing thoughts, whether or not they be about your jurisdiction, whether or not they be about the country from coast to coast to coast, um, anything that you would really like to send out into the universe to hopefully see continued as we make our way through this current wave. Do one of you ladies want to begin? Well, you know what I find myself thinking about is I just, I, this seems like, you know, approaching the two year anniversary of 
this being the reality of most of our lives as clinicians, as as parents, as community members, you know, I, I sometimes wish we could all just hit the pause button for a moment and just look back and think, you know, I mean, A, we have been through so much collectively, all of us, every single person. No question, some people have been through more than others, but it's been hard for every single one of us. And I just wish as we see you know, the way that the rhetoric has has um, increased so dramatically and and also, you know, how people's um, indifference has increased and this idea of I'm done with it, I want to go back to normal. You know, I sometimes just wish we could have a collective just moment of reflection. You know, we've done a lot. We've gotten through a lot here. There are some things that our country has done really, really well, that our communities have done well. And, you know, even some of these places, I am from rural Manitoba myself. That is where I grew up. And, you know, even though sometimes our rural areas are when we see certain ideas and philosophies entrenched, I also know the kind of people who come from those communities. They are good people. They're people who care about each other. They're communities that care about each other. And what I wish is that we could all take a moment, reflect, commit to those qualities that are within us, that are embedded, are obvious to anyone who knows the communities that we are from, the kind, you know, the best parts of ourselves, that we could just recommit to bringing those parts back into the discussions, into the decisions, into the policies, into the ways that we speak to each other. If I had just one wish coming up to our COVID anniversary, I think it would be for all the good things about each other that we know are there um, to just manifest again, because I think in some of the heated discussion and polarization, um, we've forgotten how to really see each other. And it's, it's very poignant. <laughs> yeah, I just, uh, I have to echo Jillian's eloquence there. It, it's really hard to, uh, to build on that. I, I think it's also worthwhile, though, to look at some of the progress that has been made. It's, it's, it's been, a. I think this last month, everybody's been pretty despondent because we keep thinking it's going to get better. And instead, here we are again, and we're not, um, we're not done yet. But at the same time, we are so much farther there ahead than we were a year ago. Um, you know, I know there's all this talk about lockdowns and restrictions, but we are much less restricted, even <laughs> even outside Saskatchewan, than we were. And you know, we have have learned so many new things. We have so many tools um, more coming. I mean, now there's an Omicron-specific vaccine that's coming within the next couple of months that uh, we hope will will make a further difference. I mean, the 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 advances on the medical side have been amazing, but there have been also so many uh, examples of people pulling together and, and coming up with innovative solutions to many things. And I, I do think it's, it's important to focus on that as well uh, as we go forward. Thanks ladies. Uh, I'll just kind of finish off. I, I don't have anything particularly profound to say other than for the fact that, um, again, I think, uh, you know, the three of us, I, I'm maybe being a bit presumptuous to speak for the two of you, but we we went into the profession of medicine to, to care for people and to advocate, you know, for, for, for those who are under our care. Um, and, uh, you know, there has been just a lot of uh, anger and a lot of uh, rhetoric and a lot of hate, you know, that has kind of just uh, festered over the course of the last, it feels like it's been, you know, particularly bad over the last month or two. And I just feel collectively again, I mean, this, this is not, this is not what this country is. This is not what our provinces are. Like, this is not why I came to this province. Like I'm, I'm a, I'm a Torontonian, right? Like how the heck did I end up in Saskatchewan and the prairies of all things? I came because, you know, I met so many caring wonderful people here who, who just fundamentally just cared about one another. And that's what this province is. That's what Manitoba is. That's what the prairies, that's what the prairies are. And, you know, it's somehow morphed into this uh, very challenging sort of dynamic that we have right now. So at the end of the day, I think for my province, at least, you know, our provincial motto, when you translate it, it it's, it's from many people's strengths. And it feels as, as though 
a lot of the messaging that has come from our elected officials uh, over the course of the last couple of months has 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 not necessarily sought to bring us together and to unify us in some sort of humanistic way, but rather to try to create more division and to create more anger and more hate. And I think we need to move away from that and move to a place where we can just remember our common humanity and look after one another as human beings. That's why we're doing what we are as healthcare providers. Um, and it doesn't matter, you know, again, like whether you're vaccinated or whether you're not vaccinated, it doesn't matter whether, you know, you believe this or you believe that. Like at the end of the day, our responsibility is to look after one another. And frankly, the measure of society is frankly how it looks after its most vulnerable. And that's what we will continue to advocate for because we don't want to allow, willingly allow at least, you know, the most vulnerable and the most marginalized in our society just be left behind, uh, you know, uh, as, as it feels like they are right now. So we just need to continue to work and push towards those ideals and try to remember, you know, what it is that that brought us to this point, uh, personally and professionally. Thank you all so very much for joining us today and for your eloquent, articulate, passionate words. Um, it is so evident to me how much the three of you truly care about those you serve and society as a whole. So thank you so very much. We will be back again next week. Um, until then, have an excellent evening and stay safe, Canada. And as always, remember, COVID-19 is airborne. Wear the best mask with the securest fit you have access to. And vaccines really do save lives. Thanks again. Thank you.